welcome this morning. I'm, I am glad you're here. We, uh, those videos are pretty well done. Ben Bransford, uh, who's been working at our church, interning at our church this year, he does them. I think he does a phenomenal job. So if you get a chance to see him, um, who knows, he might ask you to be in a video, um, which I'm sure all of you would love. This morning, uh, before we before we come to the sermon, let's, let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would show us your heart through your scriptures. Pray that I would be able to preach clearly, and that your Son would be exalted. The first candle of Advent season, we're in Advent season now, the first candle of Advent season was uh, hope. Last week, Pastor Luke preached on peace, which is the second candle here. And the third candle that we light this morning celebrates joy. Joy. When I think of joy and I think of Christmas, I automatically think of joy to the world. That great Christmas song that we sing, Isaac Watts, was the author of that song. Handel wrote the music. Isaac Watts wrote the lyrics to that song. He was a theologian who lived during the late 1600s and early 1700s. I was going to show a picture of him, but he, he looks too scary, so I'll leave it up to your imagination. Now, he was credited with writing over 750 hymns, 750 songs, a number of which we still sing today. Uh, that song that we sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, that was Isaac Watts. Our God and our help in ages past, Isaac Watts. And perhaps his most famous song, of course, Joy to the World. And Watts wrote hymns during a time in the church when they largely sang songs directly from the Psalms and other passages of Scripture. They would have a tune and then they would sing a psalm. And what happened over time is the practice became dull and routine. And so Isaac Watts was an innovator, and he decided to put theological poetry to beautiful music in order to liven up the worship service. And so that's what he did. He, he wrote worship songs. He, he wrote hymns. And he wrote Joy to the World after meditating on Psalm 98, the psalm that we will look at today. So if you have a Bible, or if you would like a Bible, you can use a pew Bible in front of you. You can open to Psalm 98. If you use the pew Bible, it's on page 500. Easy to remember, page 500. But if you use your own Bible, you can do that too. The pew Bible is page 500. Now, Isaac Watts never intended his hymns, Joy to the World, to be used strictly during the Christmas season. That was never his intention. Because as we'll see, Psalm 98 celebrates the salvation accomplished by the Messiah and the future accomplishment of the Messiah, the future coming of the Messiah. This song wasn't meant, Joy to the World or Psalm 98, both were not meant to describe just the Christmas miracle. Now, what is joy? Let's talk about joy. Let's talk about what the Bible says about joy. Joy is, according to the Bible, constant worship. Not constant singing, constant worship. You can worship when you're singing. You can worship as you work. You can worship as you study, as you parent. 
as you sit at your daughter's room at 2 o'clock in the morning waiting for her to go to bed, again, in her own bed. I found myself doing that this week, thinking, am I really worshiping now? I don't know. When it comes to following Christ, you see, joy, this constant worship, is descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning it's a characteristic of who we are as Christians. We shouldn't have to sort of attain joy. It should be a mark of who we are. And that asks the question, I ask the question from that, if somebody were to describe you as a Christian, would they say they have a lot of joy? Would they? You see, biblical joy is descriptive of Christians of people who fear God, Yahweh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, no matter what the circumstances or seasons they are in in life. That's what the Bible describes joy as. It's a stark contrast to what many of our stories in our culture have today. Uh, Our culture looks at joy and it's connected to happiness and connected to material gains, connected to physical beauty, academic success, and job satisfaction. According to our culture, once these are attained at some satisfactory level, then we will have joy in our lives. This comes across in our songs, in our movies, in our literature, in our media. But the author of Psalm 98 would disagree. Now, it would be naive of us to assume that the original audience of this psalm were not concerned about the same things that we have today, health, finances, relationships. The people who sang this psalm, the the people who received this psalm, had every problem that we have today. Look at the Bible, look at the people in the Bible, look at just some of the prophets. We'll just look at the prophets. Jeremiah struggled with his job. Any of you have uh, not seemed to have joy in your job and working? Jeremiah struggled with his job. He repeatedly expressed disdain over his calling as a prophet. And in fact, most of his ministry went really, really, really bad by worldly standards. Hosea had a horrible marriage. He was married to a prostitute who continually cheated on him. And all this was recorded forever in Scripture. I wonder if some of your marriages would be recorded forever in Scripture, what they would be like. Maybe tough. Jonah was sent to preach the grace to the most violent culture of his day. What a calling. However, again and again, the Bible describes those who anchor their lives in God as having joy. Jonah had the most joy that we see recorded in Scripture when he was in the belly of a big fish. See, one of the best New Testament examples is Paul. He found joy despite being locked up, beaten up, shipwrecked, and abandoned. Because as he understood, joy is not derived from easy circumstances or a wonderful life. Neither is it the result of denying emotions or avoiding suffering. Someone doesn't find joy by rejecting unmet expectations or desires, according to Scripture. You see, there is a common understanding today that if you simply meditate on joy 
and reject pain and suffering, or if you rid your life of all wants and desires, so that you're not disappointed when things don't come to pass, then you will achieve a state of transcendence or joy. I was listening to a radio segment this week. Uh, there was a book that was recently wrote by a number of sort of um, uh, so-called spiritual guides. And their conclusion was this. You have to wake up every day. You have to meditate on, on joy. And you have to push all the bad things in your life out of your mind. And you just have to just have to think of joy. Just kill all pain and desire and suffering and, and move those things out of your life. You need to stay off the internet. Don't read the news. Whatever it was, you just need to meditate on joy. And then after a while, you're going to be a joyful person. That's what it says. But in contrast, that's what they say. In contrast, the Bible actually contains passage after passage of humans experiencing emotional turmoil, expressing deep anger, and wrestling with competing and unmet desires. You see, the Bible never treats emotion or pain as weakness. The Bible never said, suck it up and force your emotions to choose joy. No, that's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says, and especially in the Psalms, that having a range of emotions is a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. It is the interpretation of our emotions that has been corrupted by sin. And therefore, as Christians, we must let our interpreta- our, the interpretation of our emotions be guided and grounded in the gospel and in scripture. We can have joy and sorrow at the same time. Joy and angst at the same time in the gospel. So what does the author of Psalm 98 have to say that we should find joy? Where, where, what does he say? What does the what does the song sing to us? It says three things, and these are my three, three points. <laughs> three things. The marvelous salvation of the king. This is where joy is found. The marvelous salvation of the king. Number two, the glory of the king himself. And number three, what the king has yet to do. Now it's nice. It's broken down into nine verses and there's three verses each that fits the three sections. There you go. The marvelous salvation of the king. The glory of the king and what the king has yet to do. Now, better help us understand this psalm before we read it. It's important to note that when this uh, psalm was sung, it was a specific context. It was meant to be sung at the temple or when the new king was installed. It was sung corporately by those who worshipped the one triune God who looked forward to his Messiah, typified at that time by the king who reigned over Israel. And so, when sung at the coronation of the newest king, it reminded the singers of the one true king that was yet to come for them. We being on this side of history know that the true, eternal, faithful king is Jesus Christ. Joy is made possible because of the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of King Jesus. And of course, the promises. All right, let's get into it. Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3. It says this, O sing to the Lord a new song, 
for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Now the first three verses of the psalm remind us of the marvelous things that God has done. What is, And this is, serves as the foundation of a Christian's joy. The marvelous thing that God has done. What are the marvelous things that God has done? Well, through the eyes of the author, it's all the times where God intervened supernaturally to save his people. You see, the most startling example for this author would have been the Exodus, and there are many others, but that would be the big one, the Exodus, when God led his people out of slavery and oppression in Egypt into the land that he promised to them. The most important example of us, for us, of course, is Christ. We know that all the marvelous ways God saved his people, as recorded in the Old Testament, were simply foreshadows of how he would eventually intervene supernaturally through Christ to save his people eternally. Just as the Israelite could not save themselves from the hand of Pharaoh, we could not save ourselves from the bondage of sin. And just as he supernaturally rescued his people by his own might, He supernaturally inserted himself into history to rescue the world. He was born of a virgin. He performed miracles. He rose from the dead. And he gifted us with the Holy Spirit who supernaturally unites our hearts and our lives with his Son, Jesus Christ. Psalm 98 begins with the gospel as the basis for our joy. You'll remember in Luke chapter 10, the disciples are given this incredible power by Jesus and they go out and they start healing people and they start casting out demons and they come back to Jesus and they say, look, look at what we're doing. This is great. Uh, It would be similar to if maybe I went out and started preaching the gospel on the streets of Carmel and many people started coming to Christ. Wow, what an exciting thing. And they go back to Jesus and they say, Look, Jesus, look at what we've done. And they have so much joy. But this is what Jesus says. He says, Rejoice not for what you've done. Look, you've had a good week. But next week, you know, you could start casting the demons won't leave, you know. He says to the disciples, Rejoice because your names have been written in heaven. That's why you need to rejoice. This is what the first three verses show us. Rejoice in what the Lord has already done for us. Your name has been written in heaven. Now, during the singing of psalms, the high priest, like this one and maybe others, the high priest that served in the temple in Jerusalem, the main priest, he would enter into the innermost section of the temple, which is called the Holy of Holies. And this is where God's Spirit resided. His presence on earth. And the priest would be wearing something. He'd be wearing his robes, and then he'd be wearing a gold ephod. Well, what's a gold ephod? It's sort of a gold breastplate 
And on this gold breastplate, it was adorned by the most valuable, gorgeous jewels that Israel had. And inscribed on this breastplate were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, representing God's people. And J.I. Packer, a wonderful scholar and theologian, remarked that Jesus is our high priest. And according to the New Testament, especially Hebrews, he's our high priest and he has united us with himself, this high priest. And as a high priest, Jesus stands before God who is in heaven and he gives us his spirit and he unites us with his son and he's interceding for us and he's bearing us before the Father. He stands right there for you and me, looking at the Father. And if he is our high priest, then our name, your name, and my name, is written across his heart on his breastplate, in a sense. And so when God sees his son, he sees your name. And he sees an absolute beauty. You see, our hearts must be melted by the joy of this marvelous salvation, which understands that the only eyes that matter that really matter in the entire universe sees you and me as more precious and more beautiful than all the jewels that lie beneath the surface of the earth. And the degree to which we let our hearts and our souls rest in God's marvelous deed of salvation is the degree, is the degree by which we will live with joy. Our names are already written in heaven on the breast of Jesus. This is the marvelous deeds that he has done. Verses 4 through 6 now. What is the response to this marvelous salvation, this beautiful thing, this beautiful relationship we have with God as he looks on us? He doesn't see us for what we think we are. He sees us as we really are. These beautiful things. It says this, and this is the imperative, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, today, don't we want to do that when we see our Father, our Father in heaven? Don't we want to make a joyful noise to the Lord? That is the response that we are to have, that we can't help but have. It's the proper response to the beauty of the King. When we understand the glory of our salvation, we rejoice in the King, the Lord. And we have to have that. And if we don't have that, then we can't bear anything else in the world. If we don't know Christ's absolute marvelous salvation for ourselves, then we will never be able to look at our own sin. We have to know how precious we are in His sight. If we don't, we can never bear to look at ourselves, to look at the sin that still resides in us. We will never have joy in all the circumstances in life. When Jesus comes to earth in this little baby boy, there is an automatic response. 
of worship. You see, we see shepherds, angels, kings of other countries all bowing down before the baby. Have you ever thought to yourself, what did they get out of it? Nothing. It was a baby. No wise words of counsel. No amazing miracles. It was a baby. And babies are beautiful and they're cute and we love them, but it's a baby. And in a lot of ways, they probably never saw this baby again. But that didn't matter. They simply rejoiced in this king for who he was. They found beauty just because he was who he was. You see, when you see Jesus as he really is, all in all his glory and kingship, you will see yourself as unworthy. But when you know that you have been made worthy by Jesus Christ, by the gospel, you will know what it means to have true joy. Perhaps you're here today and you think, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't see what the big deal is with all this uh, about Jesus. I mean, I'm a good guy, right? Or I'm a good person. Again, once you stand in the presence of the king, as it says here, make a joyful noise before the king. Once you stand in, in the presence of the king, unless you know that he is all for you, and that you are all for him, you will never understand the importance of Jesus. You will never be able to look at yourself as you really are, sinners, saved by this marvelous salvation. We can show up here to church every Sunday looking good. Uh, we can even show up here every Sunday, and many of you do look good. Um, and we can tithe, and we can give, and we can be involved, and those are all good things. But I'll tell you that unless the gospel is at the heart, has done so much work on your heart, continually does so much work on your heart, the songs we sing and the giving that we do and the serving that we do will always be shallow and ungrounded, and it'll waver. To have joy is to recognize Jesus as this marvelous king, and that's what it says. Make a joyful noise before the Lord. Why? Because he's just the king. We don't get anything from Him. We just get Him. The posture of pride and entitlement is wiped away. And then we see in the last three verses that everyone is invited to sing to the King. The whole earth. Verses 7-9. through nine, Let the seas roar and all that fills it. And the whole world, those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, it says. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people with equity. The Psalms, the psalmist writes that the earth will join in with praises to the King. The rivers will clap their hands. That's kind of an interesting imagery, isn't it? <laughs> rivers clapping their hands. The hills will sing for joy to the Lord who comes to judge the earth with righteousness and the people with fairness. You see, the response to the Messiah is so overwhelming that even creation joins in this wonderful song. Yet, let me ask you, what happened when Jesus came to the earth? The first time. What, what happened? Did the fields, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy as we're about to sing? 
No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Is the curse gone? Does he rule the nations with truth and grace? Is that even true of today? No. The nations do not give him glory. You see, the curse of sin is still very much on this world. It's amongst us. Nancy Guthrie, a a wonderful Bible teacher and author, Nancy Guthrie, I'd suggest anything by her. She wrote wrote something, and I'm going to read it. She had a daughter, a son and a daughter, and her daughter lived for six months and then died uh, due to a rare genetic disease. And every Christmas she sings this song, Joy to the World, and she wrote about this in a blog post. And she says this, As I work through the question of my daughter, of why my daughter was born with a fatal genetic disorder, it became clear that the effects of sin have infiltrated every part of creation, including the genetic code. I developed a deepening sorrow over the pain caused by the effects of sin in this broken world. And when I sang these words, I struggled a bit with them because I knew that the thorns still infest the ground. When Jesus came the first time, the earth did not receive the thorns. But instead, they hung him on a cross. Even after his death and resurrection, sin and sorrow still grow, and the thorny effects the thor- and the thorny effects of the curse remain. But when Christ comes again to us, all will be different. Every knee will bow this time. We won't just see humanity celebrating His coming. The earth itself will rejoice. The rivers will clap. The curse will finally be gone for good so that all creation will be set free from decay to worship of Christ. This is why there is so much joy and joy to the world. It anticipates joy when Christ comes the second time. When the kingdom he established at his first coming will be consummated as the reality when we live forever. Hope and joy at Christmas come from knowing that Christ's life that began in the cradle ended on the cross. His death conquering death was followed by resurrection. His resurrection was followed by the ascension into heaven and the promise to return. Our joy, the Christian joy, is an already and not yet joy. Creation joins in our own hearts with anticipation to be redeemed fully and made right. No more cancer, no more destruction, no more pollution. When Jesus comes again, the planet will receive her King with longing to be made righteous once again. That's what it says here. And when Jesus comes again, it says here, He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity or fairness. When Jesus comes again, He will deal fairly with you and I. He will give us what we have worshipped. If we worship His Son, if we cry for His mercy, if we sing of His glory, if we give Him our hearts, then on that day He will make known to us fully the joy of salvation, His eternal salvation. If we worship ourselves, if we have worshipped anything but His King, His Son, 
He will give us nothing but ourselves. No joy, no community, no singing, no rest. He will give us simply ourselves in eternal, internal lonely endless. This morning, let your joy arise, Christians, from our response to God's marvelous deed of salvation for anyone who trusts in Jesus. Let your joy flow from the worship of nothing but Him. What's so great about Jesus? Just Jesus. And finally, as Nancy reminds us, joy anticipates the reality that is yet to come. This is the Christian joy. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, if you are still worshiping yourself, I ask you, is your joy continuous? Does it stay with you through all of your life circumstances? Is it fleeting? Is it coming and going? The joy of a Christian is based in the Gospel. It's ruled by our King. And that is the joy that we celebrate with this little baby boy. Born the King of Angels. Resurrected. And coming again to join to judge the earth in righteousness and fairness. On that day, that day, when He comes, we will join with the creation of the world. We will look into each other's eyes and we will joyfully sing a new song. We will know that He was worth waiting for and that He is worthy of all praise. We're going to sing the song now. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. He is coming to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Will we sing that this morning in wonderful anticipation and wonderful gratitude of what He has done and what He is going to do. Amen?